hello everyone welcome back to frivolous gravitas today this is actually part two today with me is jordan roy as always my delightful co-host and myself christopher driver talking to you on some uncertainty and the fear pertaining thereto. um in the first part we talked a lot about uh macro development uncertainties uh things like the weather and economics and government policies and the financial collapse, as always, because that's a, a particularly sore spot for myself. But in, in this section of uh, of our our talk, we're going to discuss a little bit more personal levels of uncertainty, and this sort of feeds into fear and decision making on a day to day level, and how it affects us. So some of the ways um, that applies can be um like as personal as health related. So like mental health itself and anxiety disorders are, um, well, as Jonathan Grayson wrote a book on OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder as an anxiety disorder that's typified by uh, fears relating to uncertainty. But we talked a bit about um, how people respond and react and are riled up by uncertainty as well either for political or power grabs by authoritarian uh, authorities or um, the financial systems dysfunction um, by CEOs and shareholders and executives and uh, political policies to just to name a few. So in the second part, we're going to be talking about insecurity as it relates to people individually, more or less. And, uh, that could be anything from from racism and immigration issues to uh, you know how you parent your kids and what you allow them uh, what you allow them to do and experience in their lifetimes. So if uh, with that as a bit of a precursor, perhaps you could take it away from here, Jordan. Where would you uh, where would you like to go with this? Hmm. Um. Because there's two. I think there's two main threads there. One was the um. There's that whole. Uh, do nothing um, on the macro, not the macro, but like that scale where of your entire life you become um, immobile with the fear of uncertainty. What are you going to do? And I've experienced this when I was younger and then I realized it's like, oh, wait, that was terrible. I'm, I shouldn't do that to myself, um, but it's not that easy. Um, but we also fall into that uh, with regard to the people that rely on us as well. Uh, and then the overreaction on the personal scale, um, which culminates in, uh, well, the uh, rallying cries of, um, you know, orange man, bad, get rid of, you know, kick the Mexicans out or something, all these things, build a wall. Uh, and uh, I need guns for protection. <laughs> Well, no, you need police officers for protection. Oh, but the police officers are causing crime. That's your problem then. Fix that. <laughs> yeah. Have have functioning police officers. You don't need a gun for protection. You need a gun for shooting practice and for well hunting and stuff. I wouldn't mind sometimes if, you know, while the police are getting their shit together, if I had a gun for protection. That's kind of where I stand on that. But um, I wouldn't but like to rely on You're not protected. Oh, no. But yeah, like... So... <laughs> Your end goal doesn't isn't satisfied by gun ownership in the sense of insecurity. Well, it doesn't fix the the macro problem. It fixes my immediate life problem. Uh, yeah, but it ends in life in prison, so it doesn't really fix that problem. It just defers it. <laughs> right, but 
Um, that aside, the uh, the the thing I think I want to get into is, and I think I um, mentioned this at the end of the last part, <clears throat> was the um, issue of uh, that that um, paralyzed in fear, paralyzed by the uncertainty uh, of what could possibly happen. Now this. Um, I think the um the stereotype on this is you see a you know suburban mother with uh you know not not letting her kids oh I can't go out to do that it could be dangerous oh we can't go to that neighborhood oh what if my what if this happens you just start running through the possible like negative scenarios and then it ends up being nothing but it also come not in like physical uh um uncertainty but also what happens if my my kids see something bad on the internet what happens if they get exposed to ideas they'll have the wrong idea and then that uncertainty of you know not just physical safety but intellectual safety uh ends up actually being um terribly damaging to everyone involved um and leads to very bland lives um but this also detrimental side effects too yes omitted yeah and to me a lot of that like i i I talked about this very briefly in the last part where you know you get this aversion to risk because oh uh, i don't want to i don't want to uh i don't want to get hurt i don't want to do this and you know there's nothing worse than dying it's like there is plenty worse than dying like you could get into a car accident and not die (laughs) um And, uh, yeah, imagine surviving torture is arguably worse than dying from the torture. Yeah. Or, um, you, and this like mistrust of people around us. And I think we got that in our trust episode, but you don't trust the world to, uh, or those people that are with you to learn from them. So you have this uncertainty of the future. Oh, I don't want my son to, or daughter, or myself to be exposed to things I don't like, because I don't understand. I don't know what will happen. So instead of dealing with it, I'm just going to delete it as best as possible. But that's not something that's possible. There's always going to be danger in life. You're not going to be able to uh, delete these things, these strange ideas until they're ready or until this, but because no one's ever ready to encounter, um, you know, if, if we could prescribe at which point in life you should be, you know, able to buy a copy of Manuel Kant or, you know, oh no, don't worry. You can't read John Locke yet. You're only 13 or something. It's like, what's going to, like, what's the harm? Well, you might start having crazy ideas about, you know, liberal governments. It's like, oh, that sounds terrible. (laughs) They're clever enough to read something complicated and get a bad idea from it, like Mein Kampf, then they're probably clever enough to, after reading it and getting a bad idea, learning a better idea. Well, they, okay, that's sort that's, of how that's I. That's a good example. Your kid picks up a copy of Mein Kampf, um, and they read it, and they're like, "Whoa, this guy's hardcore," <laughs> and uh, that's one way to put it. But um, they they actually like get into it, you know, because they're young and impressionable. But then they go out in the world and they say, you know, something from the book, and then you know, someone with authority that they trust says, you know, they challenge them on it, and which is, you know, and 
they get challenged on it and oh no, all of a sudden their views on the thing they read change and now they have a more nuanced appreciation for it and they come to a different conclusion than maybe Hitler was had something going on. Um, which and in our society, if someone does that, they're definitely gonna get challenged on that. Um and but rightly so. <laughs> So, yeah, and the, and the danger there is if you protect a kid from Mein Kampf, right? You say you can't read it because you're too young, or the Communist Manifesto. If we don't, if we want to take it less extreme, less. <laughs> if you're worried yes. about the ideas that the kid's <laughs> going to get from the Communist Manifesto, and you try to block them from it, when they eventually do read it, if they do get those crazy ideas, it's going to be really hard to get them out of those ideas because they were taught not to question things. Right. Like and we're creating the same trap we're trying to avoid. Not only that, it becomes this object of mystery. Yeah. <laughs> you give it some allure, some. Yeah, uh, it's like, oh. Enticement capital. It's like, you know, it's you get told one thing all your life, and all of a sudden someone's saying something different, and it's just candy to that to a starving mind, anything different mm -hmm. becomes. Um, yeah. Agnosticism blew my mind because I was raised as a, as a theist Christian and mm -hmm. devoutly so for many, many years, yeah. just the exposure to agnosticism as another form contrary to atheism was just, I had no idea people had thought differently before because I wasn't allowed to hear it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that helps anybody. And in preventing people from acquiring thought and exposing them to new ideas, we make them more resistant to newer and better ideas down the road. Right. You, so this you, is where that, that long-term goal is not being satisfied by our short-term myopic narrow view of how things could or should be. And right. I, I think that's just as dangerous as the ideas themselves are believed to be. Yes. They're obviously and, not because they're just ideas. Well, you're making an anti-fragile brain. And this mm -hmm. is this is well, I guess that's Taleb's Taleb's um, idea of you know you you strengthen yourself in order to be more effective. So when you're challenged, you have um, a more effective and more resilient response to it. But then this is brought into that. And this um, with um, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Lukianov's book, uh, "The Coddling of the American Mind," where they show that this is actually having like. Um, they give a psychological perspective on the negative effects of this sort of um, over protection and over safety uh, conscious, you know, well, I don't want my, uh, I don't want this and I don't want that. I want them to have the perfect future, which comes from a good place. You, every parent wants their kid to have the best possible life, obviously. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, well, then that's like literally automatically bad parent. Straight up, that's that's it's not a good parent, um, and that kid is automatically going to have something to work through. And if they honestly, if they work through that, having a bad parent and grow up, they're actually going to be more um, anti fragile than the child that had the good parents. Um, and it also insulates the kids from um, the parents' inherited prejudices. And I don't mean just like racial prejudices, but things like quack science. You know, if you want to raise a healthier kid, you don't do it by instilling them in them belief systems that are wrong and then not giving them the tools to figure out that they're ever wrong. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So even if I as a parent have an idea about some kind of quack medicine or, you know, homeopathy or something like that, if I don't teach my kid to think for themselves, they may either believe it or disbelieve it, whichever side they fall on, but 
they won't they won't assess it for its validity in in any regard whatsoever because they don't have the tools to contemplate it. Right, they'll just so go they'll ruminate and think right, about that it. Sounds nice. Yeah, like and and it becomes a matter of this is what I like to hear rather than mm -hmm. what's true because truth has to be confronted because truth oftentimes is not what you want to hear. It's nice when it is. It's just like, oh, yes, thank you for someone confirming my suspicion on this one topic. But, but that shouldn't rare. be the, the dominant goal. That right? is so like, rare. When it happens, it's like, oh, that's nice. I was right. And you go, yes. And you move on to the rest of the truth that hurts. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, I, I moved recently. I don't know what's going to happen. I've got all this uncertainty, but I'm plowing through it. And I'm and I'm vindicated because the truth was that that last apartment that I was living in was terrible. This I'm already living a, um, you know, a more not easier, but more comfortable, comfortable life. There's better challenges here rather than someone with, um, COPD spitting up their phlegm on my balcony every night. So, um, yeah, now I have to worry about the cat getting out. Oh no, <laughs> like I've got better problems now uh, because I confronted the uncertainty because I would have been safe staying in that last apartment because I knew and I could have, uh, I could have um, uh, negotiated for a lower rent again. But like, it was like, there's a lot that I had less freedom there. I had less, uh, I couldn't tinker with, you know, the, the place I, I wasn't like, I, I had no incentive to make my, my, my place better. So now moved, I encountered uncertainty and now I'm in a better place. I could have failed. The, the market could have crashed the moment we moved into this place uh, or something. And, you know, we would have had to deal with that, but that's something I would have had to deal with then. And, but you're always dealing with uncertainty on many levels. And the truth is that, you know, I, now have other problems and I can't let myself, you know, knee jerk like I was before. And I think that's this complacency that I was talking about is, I don't want to say like, well, don't live a life of complacency because when you're comfortable, you're comfortable and you don't want anything to harm that. You've got a good thing going, but it's a fragile the preservation of comfort can also be done intelligently, right? Like right. you can secure your home and after you have a secure home, you can make it more secure, but to throw seven locks on a door instead of just four or five, I mean, at some point there's an excess, right? My favorite. <laughs> and I was... think that's sort of what we're getting at is when people respond excessively to um, the, the stress of uncertainty, that is, I think, basically the definition of an anxiety disorder is when you're disorderly personally on in, in, in your life due to an exaggerated fear of something that's not um, commensurate with the actual risk of harm at right. hand. You're looking for exterior threats to that you can solve instead of dealing with the inherent cause, which is an interior problem. You're always going to have uncertainty and there's always going to be a threat like inherently, like if I walk across the street, I could get hit by a car threat. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so, um, the thing is that you kind of have to get comfortable with that. And, uh, like at my last two apartments that I lived at, they, they started locking the outer door 
Now in Canada, if you're watching not in Canada or in a warm place, we have to have two doors or the entire building will freeze. Um, it's not about safety. It's about the weather. You have to have an outer door and an inner door. Um, and um, I don't I think know part of it's fire safety because it yeah, locks the air off from the outside. But right. yeah, I don't know. But that, like you don't I don't remember seeing that in a lot of warmer places. And I know it's anyway, moving on. If you know, put it in the comments, but I know it helps with heating because you have this kind of like buffer um, that yeah. keeps the heat in to the room. Like an airlock. Yeah, the heat lock. Um, and what people think of it, it's a, it's a security thing. Now it does add another layer of security. You have another door that they need to get through. But the thing is, is that when you lock that outer door, it makes you feel safe, but you're not. And I tell, I tell my landlords this, it's like, if I wanted to get in, and I think I've said this in a, the last podcast, you know, you're just going through the basement window. Easy. I don't have to deal with the locks. And so you create this illusion of, um, of safety that makes you feel good. It makes you feel like nothing could happen. And once you have that illusion, which is not based in reality, you're dealing in a place of, um, you're dealing with, you're putting yourself in a fictional position that um that is not it's a fragile position inherently because when something doesn't line up with reality then you are actually putting yourself in more danger you can be attacked from the side uh you're not going to see it coming because you think you're safe but when you realize the actual like i could get hit by an airplane an airplane could fall on my house there's nothing I can do about that. I could try and make my house more structurally sound. So if an airplane hits my house, I'd be like, oh, wow, that's terrible. That's not going to happen. But um, if a, if you did all that and an airplane hits your house, it would still be excessive, even if you succeeded. You know yeah. what I mean? Because it's so unlikely that you shouldn't have been prepared for it anyway because there are better things for you to do with your life. Mm -hmm. So I, I think you really hit something critical there because you talked about like honesty and trust, but like in yourself. You have to be honest with yourself in knowing whether or not <clears throat> your responses are, um, are are relatively sound to to the environmental pressure that you're trying to extinguish, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, if to be afraid of crossing the street, knowing how many car accidents there are and how many pedestrians are getting hurt that's a fair assessment. That's enough to look both ways. But is it really enough to never cross a street? Yeah. Unless there's an overpass, like, would you walk two kilometers over just to cross the street and walk two kilometers back? Like, at some point, we should be able to discern whether something's excessive or reasonable. And that line could be slightly different or will be slightly different for everybody. But for a lot of things that should be common sense aren't because people allow themselves to to justify their irrational ideas to it's, themselves. They lie to themselves easy and problem. they accept that. It's an easier, so um, having more locks on your door is an easier way to solve your general anxiety than actually going to a therapist and talking to someone about your general anxiety. Right. Um, but so, rationally, three locks versus five locks or seven, if somebody breaks through your door with three locks, guaranteed they have the motivation and the tools to break through seven locks. Yeah, they just kick like, your door. You're not protecting yourself anymore, but allowing yourself to believe that you're more protected with more locks is a sign of obsessive compulsion. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, and so you're not dealing with the meta issue there. You're, you're, you're dealing with 
you know, portion of it. And I feel like when you're doing that, you're, you're actually putting yourself in a position where that's not being solved. You blame, and this is kind of what I meant when I said, you know, you move the threat to something externally. When the threat of your safety is actually in your own mind, when you are putting off dealing or maturing or, um, or uh, getting on with your life in spite of safety, um, then you're in a bad position because you, you are hindering yourself. Uh, you're, you're, you're stunting yourself and it piles on. You're going to start seeing this as a defense mechanism for a bunch of other things. Well, um, I eat improperly, so you can rationalize that away. Well, not me. I try and eat properly, but... Um, so you say, oh, well, I, uh, and I used to see this at Starbucks. People would get non-fat lattes and then put whipped cream on top and say, oh, well, I got non-fat. It's like you just discounted 2% fat and then stuck 33% fat on top. Yeah. And then that was all based on some quack science about how fat becomes fat in your body. And that's not how biology metabolizes fat. Like <laughs> You need an emulsifier that'll turn it into little globlets because you can't just absorb it. And then that fat absorbs other vitamins and nutrients, which you actually need, which is the reason why we eat fat is mm. so that we can take in vitamins and nutrients zero that body are fat. absorbed well, and soluble in fat. Being healthy. <laughs> but it's like this oversimplification of, well, if that's fat, and I swallow it, then it gets fat on me. And that's just not how our bodies produce fat. Our bodies produce fat from sugar. So it, it's all of these like overly simplified ideas that we try and rationalize things that are untrue rather than knowing whether or not the things we know are knowable, first of all, and second of all, whether we know the right thing. Right. The worst insecurity is fed off of a lack of knowledge. You don't get more insecure the more you know. Well, and what happens is the end is that you become married to your insecurity. You become married to these, um, these, these inane processes that you've set up as defense mechanisms around you. I need this. This is, and this is what I hear people constantly saying. Like, I'm like, like they're talking about race in my wife's school. Uh, and it's like a high level school. And they talk about like, you need to deal with race. And I'm like, that's, like, no, you need to deal with patients regardless of their race. Why are you worrying about what race they are until they come in the door? Like, well, because every race needs to be taken on their own merit. No, every, ra every race, every individual needs to be taken on their own needs, not their race. And this isn't helping. And then I always hear something like, oh, well, this helps me. Because it's always like, a, you know, they're married to the idea. They don't want to get rid of it. So they make it personal. They make it a personal little ribbon that they wear. And they're not willing to get rid of it because it's simple. Or um, uh, those prejudices cause harm in like the opposite ways too. Like for instance, um, I I was diagnosed with diabetes when I was like 25. I had <laughs> symptoms my whole life, but because I'm not black or native, which you know they would start looking for diabetes sooner because there's a higher prevalence of it in the community. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a white, you know, ancestrally Jewish person. They just didn't even look for years. I suffered and they kept misdiagnosing me. And that's sort of like the opposite side of racism where like you avoid certain solutions based on race when data is correlative and not causative. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not only the prejudices that harm people by discrimination. It's also the prejudices that harm people by neglect. 
which work in reverse or as the the white hillbillies might call reverse racism but <laughs> I'm, I'm not declaring victimhood or anything what i'm saying is there is a hazard to both oh yeah of the extremisms because when you get stuff like that becoming you know extremism and it becomes ideology eventually you get the people who are wanting all this safety and all this you know security from ideas and harm and what ends up happening in this i know this is sounding like a conspiracy theory is it gets codified and then they start pushing these behaviors on everybody as a law you have to you know in edmonton right now i think manitoba has a similar thing they have like vision zero where we're gonna have zero car accidents you know in the next whatever time period doesn't matter because it's inane it's stupid to have zero car accidents oh you're gonna have to like to change that you would have to change traffic and outlaw traffic but they're making it so like they're putting up more cameras they're they're lowering speed limits to it's so slow to get around the city Um, meanwhile the government's subsidizing automakers to produce more vehicles right it's insane if you're trying to promote people to have enough money and buy more vehicles as a method of economic stability the causal the causal response to that will be more cars on the road period that has to occur just by fundamental principles of you know physics right if you produce more cars there are going to be more cars in existence now (laughs) the 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 um this manifests in other ways too because my wife had to take uh what's they call it's like a sensitivity training a mandatory Uh waste of time (laughs) where they talk about inclusivity and um what happened was they make her say a statement i'm an ally of this or that to prove that she's not racist so they made her sit through a three-hour lecture about how she's evil because of literally her skin pigment pigment and uh, everyone's talking about how you know most of this high most of this graduate program level thing are you know non-white female and they're sitting around being told by this white guy how you know brave they are for making it this far and then this like there's white guys in the program who are coming from nothing racking up debt to just get the chance to and they're getting through and being told that they're bad for it it's like yeah this they're is paying for a finger wag so <laughs> they're making and so what they're doing is they're they're forcing them all to make statements of ideology and they're enforcing that um that neurotic behavior on everyone in the program because you know this is what we need to make it safe for everybody especially those who are you know subject to harm every day because of their skin color or gender whatever and it's all a lie because we're we're all in it together and to in their worry about a passing slight what they're doing is creating racism right right down at the bottom they're trying to avoid somebody's feelings from being hurt for two seconds and as an aftershock effect of this you're going to create racist people for a lifetime right like right that agility is a statement of racism towards white people i know it sounds ooh, but like that's what it is (laughs) and racism comes in every flavor because we can be mean in very creative ways and (laughs) and that's that's that enforcement of 
this that I am worried about personally because I enjoy freedom. And oh, and you see, start seeing things like China. Well, freedom is actually not something that everyone wants, you know, said people who've never had it. <laughs> and um, then, you know, actually, we need a government that, you know, restricts it for the good of the people. I'm just like, yeah, because let me figure myself out. Let me create my own anti-fragility. Don't pad my room because I will, uh, I'll become a shell of what I used to be. And I don't want that. I want to live with that risk. I like, I'm planning on having kids. So that's a lot of risk. Yeah. A lot of risk. Like (laughs) it's a lifetime of risk. (laughs) Conception itself is a lottery. (laughs) And like, I'm already worried about a ton of stuff, but I'm planning and I'm trying to keep myself focused on it and trying not to be like, oh, and, I, and don't get um, paralyzed by the fear of the bad things that happen. Because once it happens, and this is the other thing, you're going through life, something bad happens. Well, oh no, I can't believe this happened. No, wrong attitude. Something bad happens. How do I deal with this? How do I move forward? It's happened. It's in the past. You can't go back. How do you deal with this now? And uh, realistically, we should be more surprised when things go right than when they go wrong. Because, yeah. I mean, it's really hard to keep an order in a system and a universe that is entirely chaotic and mm-hmm. devolving or diving into entropy. You know, <laughs> everything decays by nature. Right. So everything we are constructive with or productive with is counter nature. Mm-hmm. It's all building and creating and establishing order from where there was none before. Yeah. And not like totalitarian order, but like the no, order like personal of order. yeah, personal order, but also and healthcare and scientific order. Like we use energy to reconstitute matter into a building so people don't freeze in the winter. Uh-huh. That's order. <laughs> like, and tools and ut- and uh, ut- utilities and things like that. Yeah. So that's at least my perspective on uh, dealing with uncertainty. Um, And you probably see a lot of influences, but I definitely have seen a lot of this in my own life and I could go on forever. Um, I think there is that, there's that not like massive imbalance between people not worried about coercive speech, but are worried about a racist joke. Right. You know, like Jay Leno just the other day had to apologize for some right. jokes he made as a comedian. First of all, he's not speaking as a political rights activist or so. he was on TV making jokes to make jokes because that's what he did for a living successfully. Right. But like to not be worried about coercive speech or like manipulated curriculums in school to not be worried about actual freedoms and charters of rights in favor of worrying about this fragile youth like what exactly is the end goal to this well and they don't even claim like the fact that they claim that no no you're worrying about it but then dave Chappelle can make worse jokes racially and everyone's like oh he's so funny it's like yeah like (laughs) racist jokes are funny because they're just jokes they would be serious and offensive if they weren't jokes well and this is the point of a joke it's something that is funny Right. And the thing about racism and what makes it so funny is that racism is inherently ridiculous. Yes. 
And it's the thing that makes fabricated. it funny is that people actually believe it. Like yes. yeah, the racism is the joke in itself. <laughs> like I like I'm pretty sure if I encountered a southern confederate racist, I would not be able to restrain myself from absolute laughter. Yeah. And, like, Until you realize how serious they are. And then it's just concern. You're like, dude, we need to sit down. I'm going to buy you a dinner. We're going to talk this out. <laughs> right? And, like, uh, I feel like this is going to turn into a clip and it's going to turn into, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, um, and that's, and that, yeah, that, that. But like our priorities are so skewed. You know what I mean? By looking at this as like a major problem in front of us, just like the climate change thing saying, well, we, we need to reduce carbon emissions, but then not worrying about how we're calculating a reduction of carbon emissions just leads to burning more carbon. Yeah. Or releasing to, more carbon into the air. Or like those types more, of things. Less, we need to go to a more natural age because we used to live so. It's like everything's based in like goofy like yeah. moon speak and it's absolutely nonsense it's like but like they make up things like the po the earth's population can't sustain more people like just absolute nonsense all you'd have to do is vertical farm yes yeah. it's more expensive that doesn't mean it's impossible it means that we could support probably 10 or 15 times more people that if all of our farms were stacked 10 high and leds we have 10 times more food hmm. and by economies of scale that means that we could more efficiently produce that much food with more so, variety and more than 10 times the population of earth so we could be looking at 100 billion people on earth in 200 years but yeah but but like thing... to, to say it like with a certainty or a matter of factly that we can't sustain more uh, a greater population is just insane it's just mm -hmm. lazy yeah it's not based on any reality well it also feels good to be indignant yeah. I think that's one of the things that it to feels, be in the know feels really good to hold a sign. And we got to this in our um, activism uh, episode, activism, uh, and it feels good to be in the picket line to yell at people to slam bang on the drum because I've been there. It feels great. <laughs> um, but when you're in that position, you're not thinking. And that is finding an X. That's that external locus and i think this brings us i think we've moved into from the internal uh from the paralyzing uh um aspect of it to the overreacting aspect of it and this is kind of um i think i guess one thing leads to another and vice versa um where they play on each other because there's this element of lying <laughs> there's no truth to it you're not existing in the real world um and and it's lying to themselves too in their beliefs like they're convinced without checking and they're okay with that that well, to me is a problem and one of the things is i keep hearing is as is it's overly subjective you get this well this is my truth and <laughs> or this is this is yeah it's it's a dumb thing like if it's yeah. truth it's truth for everybody why can't we have um what like how it's like saying this is my car no, it's my car. It might be a pen to you, but it's a car to me. Yeah. Well, that's okay, but it's you can call it that all you want, but when I tell you I'm going to pick you up in my car, you're not going to think of my pen, so it's really pointless to try and communicate with words that you just make up for yourself. And if you show you up know? with a pen, and I'll be like, where's your car? And you'll be like, well, it's right here. And I told like, you I was bringing my car. And I'll be like, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to 
you need to, but it's, it's that absurd to say like i have my truth and you can have your truth and no there is truth and then there is subjective experience but they're not both true right and because they're fragile they don't put themselves in positions where they can be challenged or debated or you know grow because there's nowhere to grow from there and you get two sides yelling at each other and everyone in the middle being like oh well um can 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 we not <laughs> and it, it doesn't just like not fix the problem like it's it's not just that it doesn't resolve your uncertainty or e on either party mm. it breeds even more of it that's what i mean by compounding yes. and why we started with economics because it, it keeps the old problem the same and makes new problems by um by extension so by by having that mentality where you don't want to want to learn more or think more deeply or be honest with yourself and the purpose of self-awareness, if you're not honest in the things you know and are teaching to the next generation or the way you live your life or the way you spend your money, what you're doing is promoting a broken system to the end of it being more broken. The problem gets worse, not only that it's still there, but it's worsened by by the neglect of thought. And uh, like un uncertainty being related heavily to fear and people re responding reactively to fear makes sense on a biological level. But well, it doesn't mean that it has to be that way. Well, you kill the barbarians over the hill before they kill you. But we've yeah. moved beyond that. Like we have debt. Like you can't say like, well, we're still animals. Yes, we are still those same animals. But, but most animals don't have gyms where they go exercise so that they're more fit to chase predators. Like <laughs> right. prey, I mean. like. But and it's weird because we, we don't we have need an ability. Oh, we don't need those muscles. Like it seems like, well, we live in this civilized world where we don't need those muscles anymore. But we don't realize that we still have to move around, and our bodies. Like when we ex, it's like, oh, I don't need to exercise because I live in I'm an intellectual laborer. It's like, yeah, but when you exercise your body, your mind, there's more calories for your, for your mind. So you are. You can't just make assumptions of you know what the ideal will be. You have to, and this is, I think this goes back to um, one of C.S. Lewis's thing, is that part of living in um, the house of God. Uh, I don't know if he would put it like that specifically. Was um, living with, and this also he actually connects this to the idea of the Tao, was living in accordance with reality. You need to be honest with your place in the world and you can't see it from the other way. The world isn't there for you. You're part of the world and to, you have to be honest of your place in that world and you have to live with regard to reality. You can't just make up, well, this is the real world. You have to explore it. You have to think about it. You have to think about your place in it, and you have to be humbled by it. And I know that's a very Christian outlook, but he was also very um he was very interested in thinking about well, he wasn't anti-science in fact he saw science as a as a very noble pursuit because it sees the world as it is um and that's what we need to do and i think a lot of this is you have uncertainty what is the uncertainty are you lying to yourself about your uncertainty are you lying about the way the world is why are you lying about the world and how are you reacting to that and we create these mechanisms of um, safety, which to some extent, 
but all these bugbears that we're creating, they aren't bugbears of their own. The reason that they're so um, off-putting and uncanny is that they are bastardizations of things that exist to aid us. So safety, you have a seatbelt and you wear it for a reason because the uncertainty of driving in uh, traffic um, makes it such that a seatbelt is a reasonable um, a reasonable reaction to the uncertainty of driving in traffic. Now, wearing four seatbelts will probably actually do more harm because you're not going to have that 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 give because it needs to um, or a helmet that doesn't let you shoulder check or something. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a bastardization of the. Uh, so you're you're seeing it. It's a bastardization of an actual useful thing. So we have we've been talking about climate change, and we have an actual problem. And like there's a, there's an issue, but instead of looking at it in a way that allows us to innovate and come up with creative solutions, we're just deleting things that actually help in an in, in an attempt to think in a think way that will help without any actual evidence that that will help. Um, and we're actually kneecapping ourselves in dealing with it by uh, doing a lot of these knee-jerk measures. Um, and it's the same with raising kids um, in that paralyzing uh, way where you have these, you're dealing with the uncertainty of the future, you're dealing with the uncertainty of raising children because who knows what they're going to what's going to happen, but you're doing your best. And that uncertainty can be bastardized and be corrupted. I think corrupted is a better word by making sure and like cherry picking what they need, what they absorb and what they, uh, what they do in order to, um, in order to provide some hypothetical and which, but it's more raising children is so complicated that you don't know, just like the economy. You can't control the economy. And we saw the corruption of actual economic controls, like we were talking about in the first part, in places like the Soviet Union or in Nazi Germany, where um, they centralized everything in one go and the other go, they um, just deferred to um, monopolies uh, like Krupp and uh, the other manufacturers who ended up having, you know, extreme uh, economic uh, power because of it. So in both cases, millions died because of this corruption of an actual uh, reaction, an actual legitimate reaction to a real problem uh, based on perceived uh, lies about what's causing that problem. And I think the that's, I think I made that a little complicated, but I think I said what I needed to say there because. Good. And just to sort of pin on to what you said, because I think you put it very well. Um, it requires honesty, like awareness requires honesty. And it's not about being or looking honest. It's about actually analyzing scientifically the things that you think and believe and how you respond and choose to respond to other things. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the COVID pandemic is a great example of this. It's more recent than 
like Roman empires or World War II's or whatever. But in the COVID pandemic pointed out exactly how our misplaced skepticism can be harmful and cost lives mm-hmm. because people chose to believe one thing over another thing and chose not to look at the data. They just chose to pick a side and believe it for no reason. The political situation is adamantly important. just crammed it down everyone's throats that they're right. And the more often they say it, the more people believe it. And the more people believe it, they believe their beliefs are reaffirmed. Mm-hmm. Like vindicated, like you said. Like it somehow makes it more true that more people believe in something that's wrong. Pleasant and that's not how truths. truth works. Like it, it, it's not a matter of who, um, who, who said it. Like quoting people doesn't mean that every quote that person's ever said makes them brilliant just because they develop E equals MC squared doesn't mean that everything they've ever said was accurate. You know what yeah. I mean? Especially but, quoting them on a different topic than they're actually talking about. Yeah, or about. misquoting out of context or something like that. But we do it all the time. And that that to me is just as dangerous as forbidding thought or for um for uh engineering a type of thinking in a school like you were saying with with your significant other it the ramifications of those harms are so long-standing and we're so nearsighted to think that this fragility problem is the biggest thing that we could deal with right now when these administrations should be wondering why their their offices are so bloated and they can't afford to pay their teachers properly yeah like they should be wondering why students are still in debt into their 30s and then wondering why they're not having kids or buying homes why are you paying um like committee heads of like diversity and inclusion offices hundreds and hundreds and hundreds like there's some like four hundred thousand three hundred thousand a year salaries for these people to just Mm -hmm. sit and find things that are racist and not inclusive and like you have and then they Entire- snatch up research funding and spend that funding on some useless program just because it's trendy or hip or it's topical or because politically, you know, it's- people care about this. Well, who gives a shit about the people's interest? If people are interested in something dumb, you're the smart person at the university. You should be telling them, no, that's stupid. I'm going to do this instead with the money. Right. Like, you know better. <laughs> you shouldn't be pandering to the public when they're not experts. You are. Just like the government shouldn't be pandering to the public to get elected to make, you know, policy changes when people don't know jack shit about diplomacy. Right. Well, you're the intelligentsia. You're supposed to be intelligent. Act like it. (laughs) You should be able to explain yourself in a way that's rational enough that other intelligent people can follow along. Without simply resorting to emotion. (laughs) Yeah. But that comes down to that, that awareness and honesty requiring truth. And I think you put that really well. Um, it it also sort of brings me to when I, when I brought up the, the idea of fitness, I was sort of thinking about it in a more abstract sense in, in the sense that we may be animals, but we're not like animals because we can inject volition into the things that we choose to do. Mm-hmm. Animals are proficient at what they do through evolution. Well, there's Just trial and error, random lottery shotgun approach. Well, we can choose to be, Hey, well, I'm not the most physically fit person, but if I work hard enough at it and I manage my diet and stuff and I take medicines that I need, I can get stronger. Mm-hmm. We can choose to change our bodies and to change our minds and to change our social structures. Animals just behave the way they behave. You can't make a chimp more civilized. Well, we're both sentient. Think about but civility. We're sapient, I think, is the difference. There. Yeah, <laughs> we are. And yeah, that, that, that makes us homos. <laughs> <laughs> 
But that is the sapien versus the Neanderthal, the Homo erectus and Homo habilis. Like that's what made us different. That's what made us successful and not them Mm -hmm. is that we could engineer our lives and our societies and our tools and our, our living standards to a greater cause, a greater good. And we should be leveraging that now that we have technology that makes information not lossy. Like for all of history, mm-hmm. information yes, is lossy. That's a really now good way of putting not. it. We've never had a better opportunity to make a better planet that's more sustainable than in the last 30 years. And I think one of the biggest travesties of our entire generation, yours and mine, is that we didn't recognize that right away. We, we should be noticing the fact that we can finally, finally have a world without war where we never could before because of communication and diplomacy. And we're not doing it. Well, it's interesting because I've been seeing a lot of um, a lot of people on what would traditionally be called the conservative side of the topic are now speaking as uh, like I'm seeing this more and more. Is that you're starting to see people using rhetoric such as um, they're getting us into a war? Why would we go to war when we could, you know, do stuff like trade? Why would we? Uh, a war is like war is now becoming, at least in our world, this thing that doesn't actually solve anything. And it's wonderful. It's going to be slow to actually get rid of it. But the fact that on every side people are taking this to heart is a, it's a nice little reaction. But I, when you get to an extreme position, well, the extreme position is, uh, and I think we defined it in our in our podcast at one time as um, by any means necessary, and that includes war. Um, but if if you know the ends justify the means, but the thing is, is that we realize nowadays is that war is a how do I say this? This is almost exactly what we're talking about. War is a reaction on to uncertainty mm-hmm. that, um, that is un. It's 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 unnecessary unless it doesn't address the problem. It doesn't at all. address the problem. But like yeah. again, if someone's attacking you, it's like you're gonna want to have to be able to fight back. If someone else makes a knee jerk decision. You're going to want to have someone to just, you know, put them down when they come to your borders with, you know, tanks. But if you squeeze off the energy supply of a country and then expect them to not be angry with you and then you (laughs) reinforce that anger by forcibly making sure that your uncertainty isn't, you know, isn't satisfied, like Mm -hmm. to be worried about Iran making nukes, that'll always be a problem. Then another country will make a weapon that could destroy the planet. That's a that's a legit fear. But to act on that fear and cause those people to hate the entire world is not the way to stop them from blowing the world up. See you, Dr. Strangelove. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you, you don't prevent people wanting to kill you by feeding arms and guns to people actively causing a civil war in, say, Yemen. You don't sell guns and stuff to Saudi Arabia to cause a war just because you don't want to be involved in the war yourself. That's that's nearsighted. And I think, think that other people dying is okay if it serves your own end. And I think this brings us to a, a, a good little final point, which is you don't know the future. You, you have this uncertainty, but you want, and I'm thinking of those generals in, uh, and Dr. Strangelove, they all had an idea and they didn't want a future where 
you know, the Russians were in control or, and the Russians didn't want a future where the Americans were in control. And this was driving a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, um, Cold War policy. And the, we don't, we, we, we're uncertain about what we want, but we're, we're certain about what we don't want. But the thing is, is that we don't realize that, okay, this is complicated, but we don't realize that we, because we are uncertain about the future, um, we don't know that that future will actually be the hell that you think it is, or even end up. So, you know, the communists take over, but then we don't know that communism, you know, if the Russians would have won the cold war, we don't know that the Russians wouldn't have, you know, come to their senses and actually, you know, or established a better democracy. How ironic would that be? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Cause you know, you have, Possible. you have something, oh yeah. It's because you get someone like Gorbachev who's like, okay, let's, 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 Pestroika and Glasnost, and we'll, we'll get this Soviet Union thing on track. But the openness showed all the deficiencies in the system. So, you know, they're trying to reform it. And um, there was uncertainty as to what was going to happen with the Soviet Union. And then it just collapsed. And what happened was, uh, it was kind of a bonanza, but um, Russia that was after years of failures had like accumulated all to one tipping point. You know what I mean? Right. And so we could have blown them out, but it was in the end, we didn't have a global war. We settled for a cold war and a bunch of proxy wars, which killed, you know, a fraction of what we could have done. But, um, Okay, that's an unpopular opinion, but whatever. Um, but Backed up by fact, though. <laughs> we let them die on their own. And then they, we were hoping they would become an ally. Uh, you know, we can trade with them and make friends because what we want is friends. Uh, and unfortunately, um, the damage was so deep that they turned into what they are today. But there's still hope. We don't need to go to war with them. We can hope. Like the uncertainty doesn't need to be such that, oh, Russia's going to do this and you don't, we don't know what they're going to do. But we can also hope that the uncertainty will lead to something that we never expected. So mm -hmm. we go to war with, you know, China or something, or we could play our cards a little better and hope for a, a, a future that is something that we didn't imagine because that one that you're imagining with you know mutually assured destruction or human wave attacks on los angeles um or something like that are that's worst case scenario and that would result from a knee-jerk reaction to the uncertainty of the relations between these two superpowers or we could see what the future has in store and work for a better way um, despite the uncertainty of the inherent political system. And I think that's it. Cause you don't know also this works on the micro level too. You don't know what your life is going to have in store. And I've been surprised by the turns my life's taken. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have too, and we can plan as best as we can, but you know, good things are going to happen in spite of what you do. And unfortunately you can't do anything to stop those good things from happening. So I guess, well, you could stop them by not doing anything at all uh, or by overreacting. So cheers. Yeah. Cheers to that. So I think um, like we don't know what's in store for the future, but what we do know certainly 
is that we can engineer the future. We can design and affect and influence the future deliberately through conscious effort. We can make decisions to say, I want tomorrow to be better than today, even if I won't personally enjoy it. Mm -hmm. We can choose to impose our volition and our will and spend our life's energies making the world something that is sustainably better for everyone. Yeah. And the things holding us back, there are many. Um, environment is one. The Earth's constantly trying to kill us. You know, it always has been. It's the kind laws of, its of physics. They make us age. Oxygen yeah. is free radicals, and it makes your cells decay. And you know, there's all kinds of things trying to kill us all the time. But, Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but the things we can do are exponentially greater than the things that can just fall apart and happen to us. Mm-hmm. And the proof of that is the construction of everything around us. In just a matter of a few hundred years, we've built cities, like full-on cities, full-on supply chains, full-on medical networks. Like, we went from zero to a hundred in like a hundred years. That's proof, like cold hard data that shows that we can make a better world than we started with. And that's that's a sacrifice that a lot of people made um, with yeah. labor, not just their lives, but with their labor that... Yeah. I almost it's like kind of a remembrance day thing. They 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 made that decision to work for a better future, but it like they benefit from it, obviously. Yeah, like, of course. You, you put work There's in, nothing you wrong benefit. With seeing personal gain and getting the spoils of reward. No. Um but to have an uncertainty feed a war is insane because we know it's pointless. We mm-hmm. we know absolutely and factually that starting war is pointless. Never start a fight. You always finish it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there are obviously cases of self-defense, and I'm not saying that nobody should ever have an army or anything like that. But what I'm saying is like funding a proxy war, like with the Kurds or something, just because not because you support the cause of the Kurds to have independence and their own, you know, to to be free from oppression. The idea should be to have everybody so intellectually enlightened that ideas can pass around freely that you don't need to arbitrate or police people's speech to get them to act in a reasonable way with their fellow men. Well, that so or why did the agreement that is actually agreed upon and not just some type of extortion allowance or, you right. know, some type of like legal way of manipulating systems for personal or exorbitant even, benefit. Or even this, which is going to be haram, um, that <laughs> what if the Kurds didn't need their own border? What if they could just live happily with everyone around them just because they can live happily? What if the Israelis and the Palestinians just stopped giving a you know crap about what like the soil who the soils belong to at that moment and just lived there with each other? Like whenever you have like a dominator, you have an oppression system. Mm-hmm. And whenever there's an, a system of oppression, people are going to fight back. Yeah. So what we really need to do is figure out a way to, to remove the dominance from the equation to say like, not to say bygones are bygones. We'll still discuss it and we'll still talk about reparations with black people and all that. Like we're, we're not trying to say that there's no harm done, but we're saying let's stop causing more of it. I like- let's, let's just make a concerted effort to cut off all our losses right now and work forward. And the way you do that is by you have is on the Israeli side saying, okay, we're going to stop bulldozing homes to build one farm, you know, put 40 people out on the street and lock them behind a 15 foot wall. 
with concrete barbed wire and armed guards for checkpoints. They just keep trolling each other. Like, and on the other thing. side, they should <laughs> be able to say, like, we need organization and political structure because our people can't be well sustained on the Palestinian side with corruption and like violent tendencies in government. Because all they're doing is dragging all the other people into another conflict. So you need like a meta state that doesn't give a crap about, you know, who's got claims to what. They just enforce the freedom of everyone in their state. And I'm saying like a meta state as in a democracy, not so. A true democracy, not one that just panders to votes. Like something that's not campaign finance and it's not just lobby groups and it's not allows. And I I like, like I keep going back to these. Uh, I don't even know. I'm probably going to sound like a libertarian, whatever. I, I like to think of it as classical liberal because you need people, you need something that's not going to like, it's going to say, we don't care about your heritage or religion or anything. The state is just here to make sure everyone gets their freedom as, you know, in the Lockean sense, uh-huh. you get the freedom from everyone to not kill each other to respect each other's property and to uh, not damage each other's health. And that fourth thing, that old man Locke's going to, he's disappointed in me right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, liberty. So to go and talk to, yeah, the, the important one. So to think and say and talk to whoever you want. And that includes the perceived enemy. So, you know, you have a friend, you go to the, you, all of a sudden you can go to the Palestinian quarter and talk to that guy, that Palestinian guy who you just like, drinking coffee with oh no but no you're sitting there claiming each other thing trolling each other and exacerbating the situation yes i'm claiming that both of you are to blame no one's no one's right no one's wrong you're all like i'm sorry and that's kind of what i feel (laughs) not feel the way i see it there are varying degrees but just because one person's worse doesn't make the other person okay they both have to stop Yes. They both have to recognize that, hey, I'm causing you harm and you're causing me harm. Let's both stop causing each other harm and finish it out or uh, figure it out. Yeah, That's what needs to happen. And if you can't do that on your own, just me and you, then you and I need to agree on a third party to get involved. And there should be other third parties that are like peaceful countries who have successfully negotiated their their peace deals and agreements. Be like, hey, you should come in here, show us how to build a power reactor that doesn't poison all of our people or poison the people oh, down yeah. the river. And those people will be chomping at the bit to get in there because right. it's like, oh, you want to, okay, yeah, let's build tons of infrastructure. Do you want the deluxe package? Yeah. <laughs> like, and we don't need to do it like China where we exploit people and say only Chinese people and Chinese government uh, or uh, contractors get these contracts. Yeah. And, and you know, only if I'm you put give in you our loan, surveillance gonna... cameras, which yeah. is... Well, the Americans did that in the Cold War with their economic hitmen type thing. They did it all through Latin yeah. America. They and absolutely destroyed an entire continent worth of countries just yeah. because they wanted control and dominance over, but, because of their uncertainty, this fear that other countries might rise up against them or do something scary or think something scary like communism. That's not an excuse to harm. Even if you disagree with people, those that's, people should just be free to leave. If well, somebody doesn't want to live in thing. North Korea, America they has should to be trust free to them. Leave. Well, that's the, the Americans. The Americans needed to trust that South America would do their thing, and it's the same thing with the Chinese now with their, I know, new Chinese colonialism, where they need to trust that business will just happen 
even though Xi Jinping doesn't like it. Oh no, it didn't happen the way I wanted it to happen. I lost control. Well, tough. But again, there's an oppressor. Yeah, he's an oppressor. There's an there's an oppression happening, and that's got to stop. You can yeah. never go on one side and say, "Hey, Chinese people, just stop freaking out." W- meanwhile, letting Xi Jinping run amok. Yeah, because it, it guaranteed will not fix things. It'll make things worse to not resist Xi Jinping. But and there's a very big critical but. If the people all agree that an external solution is ideal and they all went to the uk and said hey uk we want our own country so we don't want you to like invade and take over and own hong kong but if you help us establish a reasonable democratic state and revolution without selling us arms and guns and bombs but like show us how to set up a parliament show us how to actually do diplomacy against a tyrant Everybody's in it together. The whole world would help them figure that out. Nobody wants China to be run by a dictator. Well, that's kind of what happened. And this is a strange way to look at it, but it's kind of what happened to Canada um, was, uh, I think it was Balfour came in. This guy came in from Britain and kind of did a survey of the Canadian colony and looked at it and said, "There, this land's too big to you know rule over from Britain and London. The only way we're going to need to, well, the only way this... Dominion is going to be able to run as if we just kind of let it do its own thing and just kind of have some edifice of control over it. And have it pay homage or something to the homeland. And so he kind of realized that in like the 1830s or 40s. And um, he made this recommendation to the crown and it ended up with Canada just being like, oh, cool, thanks. Um, And it ended up interesting because Canada contributed more as a free state than it would have ever as a directly controlled colony. Mm -hmm. And I think... And they benefited from our technology. We became the first peacekeeping forces in in wars and stuff, you know, supporting people without supporting the murder, Mm -hmm. but like supporting with food, provisions, like the, uh, the UNICEF and Blue Hats and stuff are pretty much modeled after Nordic countries and Canadian style socialist military. And, you know, and we've actually pioneered a whole bunch of um, technological advancements and schools of thought in Canada that are attributed to other countries because our country had the liberal freedom to have such discussions and, uh, and, and funding, like social funding. Mm-hmm. Our public schools are some of the best in the world relative to the whole world. That's not to say they're perfect. And we've got issues with, you know, having assimilated um, native peoples through our public schools. So they're not without fault or history either. Like there's some very traumatically terrible things that our school system has done to families across generations. But the thing is, we were open enough to be able to reconsider our past and learn from it. Instead of doubling down. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the, the, the population hates us. Put cameras everywhere and lock them in their homes. Right. It, it, it's doing the opposite of what everybody's traditionally done, where their insecurity feeds them to hoard more guns, be more forceful, be more dominant so that we're less uncertain about the capacity and ability of another country overthrowing us or flooding across our borders. We want control at the border. Why? Not because they're less human than us, because they, they crossed an imaginary line. Like So your citizenship depends on your geography, which was arbitrarily drawn based on murders and war. Like 
The fact that we have countries is useful politically because then we can organize people of similar values and geographies and cultures to, to be productive. But it's not a definitive sign that says one human being is more or less than another human being because of a line. Yeah. That was never the function or purpose of borders. Well, the new borders that are set up were set up in such a way like this is a line. This line makes war illegal. If you cross this line, there's war. You're not allowed to go to war because everyone, if we go to war, it, it, it's, 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 it's this weird counterintuitive thing that we set up that these are like after World War II, it's just like, okay, these are the borders. We don't care what you think. Well, why did you set up borders? I don't like it. Well, it's not really to take you into account. It's to stop this happening again because now this is enforced. Well, why? Well, some nations are bad. Well, the thing is, is that those nations can become better than they were before. We can bring them out of that. Instead of just bringing them into the good place, we can make that area a good place instead of... And without any rule of law whatsoever, you'd just have militias all over the place and there'd be no control, like in the Middle East with all the little um, ISIL groups and stuff, you know? Yeah, ISIS. Like that's what happens when you don't have borders. So borders are useful, but the fact that you can prevent a person seeking asylum from crossing your border, knowing that there's human rights abuses abroad, that, that's just as criminal as neglect. You know, if you see somebody about to shoot a gun at somebody else and you just turn around, walk away, say nothing, don't call the cops. If you do nothing, that's neglect. Like, there are ways to prevent harms. And I think diplomacy is something we haven't actually explored like fully yet. We're still working on it as as a, a more enlightened people in the information age. But what really needs to be um like weighted, heavily weighted in our conversations is the fact that we haven't done it all yet. We've only just started learning how to do things properly. Before this, before technology, we didn't have the opportunity to discuss things in different languages and have a machine learning algorithm translated on the fly. You mm. know, things like that just weren't possible. You had people interpreting things and lost in translation from human to human to human is common enough even when people speak the same language. Never mind when it's being translated between like cultures and across different biospheres and stuff. So right. So I, I think one of the things uh, we've gotten a bit off topic. Um, uh, we started talking about, um, but it's what I'm trying to get at with the subject though is the uncertainty is the reason for the calamitous activities that we engage in all over the place. Right. Like almost unilaterally, the way we hate people is based on our uncertainty of what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. The way we sanction other countries, our uncertainty based on their power and control over our economy. The way we do it with um, childhood experiences and how we raise kids to be fearful and fragile and everything is based in uncertainty. It's, it's all these levels of harm caused by this anxiety, this pervasive, ubiquitous human social anxiety of each other mm -hmm. rather than being constructive and cognizant of the fact that we can all together directly influence the future as opposed to being scared of it. It should be an opportunity for everybody today to be more optimistic than ever about the future of humanity. The, like there's less, there's never been less reason to be nervous about each other because we can talk to each other. We yeah. know exactly where they're coming from. A good book on that would be, um, uh, I think it's Matt Ridley's, uh, there it is, The 
Yeah, it's Matt Ridley's The Rational Optimist. And he actually looks at prosperity as a evolving historical thing. And that's what that book's about. That's a good book. I like Matt Ridley. <laughs> He's this old guy who's like... Really yeah, we should always be plugging literature. I'll never turn that down. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think... On that note, I think that's uh, all I, I want to get at. Yeah, I think we've said what we what we needed to say. Um, Exposure to ideas is important. Being compassionate is important. Being uncomfortable is okay. But being um, capitulating is not okay. <laughs> we shouldn't just give in because enough people are loud enough about a subject. That's not a good reason. That's a good reason to have a conversation, but it's not a good reason to implement policies or force thought or coerce written statements of, you know, non-bias attributions in educational institutions. Like Have my bias, not yours. That's not the function of a school. <laughs> the, the function of a school is to think more, not less. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Awareness and honesty, super critical because we all do it. All right. Um, so yeah, that's, thanks for the conversation. That's been episode 18 of ish. Yeah. Ish of frivolous gravitas. Uh, again, if you have um, any comments or criticisms or tomatoes uh, to throw at us, just leave them in the uh, comments and uh, we'll see you next week um das vidanya adios